I'm Sarah Zanbergen, and I'm the ambassador for Stance. And this is the Take Back Talk Back podcast. Our mission for this podcast is to open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations, just like this one. I'll never forget the first time I tried to negotiate my salary. I was working at a retail store in the management training program. Even in my 20s in retail, I had a career plan. All of my store management unfortunately quit and I had no one to report into. I had to pretty quickly snap into leadership mode and make sure everything ran as normal, but with a skeleton staff. After receiving our performance reports from my district manager, I thought, well, it's time, I'm gonna ask for a raise. I worked at that time in a remote location with little to no direct communication to our head office, so my big move was to write an email to the closest thing I had to a manager at the time, making my case to be made store assistant manager and asked for a pay increase. Well, my next paycheck showed up, an increase in my salary came, 10 cents an hour. I probably should have used the help of someone like Catherine at the time. I'm so excited to welcome our guest today, Catherine Meisner, career and salary negotiation coach. She uses a calm, warm-hearted, and action-driven oriented approach to help people find jobs they love with salary increases over $55,000. She's given career advice to Elle Magazine's 1.8 million readers, collaborated with NASA, the Royal Ontario Museum, and the Art Gallery Ontario and is a TEDx speaker with a talk that currently has over 100,000 views. Please welcome Katherine Meisner. Hi. Thanks so much for coming to chat with us today on Take Back Talk Back. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited too. I'd love to start with your TEDx talk. The subject is resilience. For those listeners who might not have seen it, please go watch it. It's fantastic. I want to start there because I think it's such an important message. For our listeners, why is the skill of resilience important when navigating your career? So I actually recorded that when I was in my nine to five world uh, before I started as a career and salary negotiation coach. And well, first of all, when we think of the definition of like, what is resilience? It's like, I think of it as... um, being able to recover quickly and well from failure or setback. And I think a lot of people in their careers, like when they hear those words, failure and setback can probably identify, or if they're in a current job search, it's like a lot of that feels that way. And so I think of resilience as kind of in the obvious way of like people having to deal with challenges in the workplace, or maybe you're at the point of job search burnout. And so the TEDx really talks about some of the key strategies. It's based on some research by Dr. Martin Seligman about how to deal with um, setbacks when you experience them. But since I recorded that a couple of years ago, and you know, I kind of chose the right topic, it's still relevant, people are still talking about resilience, I've almost come to think about it in a few different other ways in terms of like even zooming out a little bit. Like a lot of the times when I talk to my clients who are navigating their career and job searching, a lot of the time they're thinking that their setbacks or their failures are 100% because of them. And they're lovely humans. A lot of them are really 
loyal and reliable people. And so they often think the problem is them. But over the past couple of years, sort of as I've started to learn more about taking a structural lens, looking at systems that can affect uh, these kind of things, I've realized and started to help my clients to look at like, what else might be affecting your career navigation? What else might be influencing the reasons why you have to be resilient? And so zooming out and kind of looking at all the isms and archies, like racism, sexism, patriarchy, uh, transphobia, all those sorts of things. And I can't necessarily change all these things for everyone. And recognizing these doesn't necessarily mean that they just disappear. But I find when I help people look at kind of that outside zoomed out uh, perspective, it can influence looking at what has contributed to uh, setbacks and almost take a little bit of the pressure off of like, oh, it's not 100% me. Oh, we are living in late stage capitalism that makes things a little bit harder and perhaps also in a pandemic that's hopefully wrapping up. And it also, again, doesn't fix everything, just recognizing this, but it also gives people the opportunity to reevaluate their choices and influence their choices. Do they want to work for a workplace that is more welcoming to them and who they are? Uh, Do they want to find a workplace that actually doesn't require them to be as resilient? Because I would love, I would love for people to not have to be resilient in a workplace. Um, Where are there, where are they going to be welcomed and how are they going to be valued for the skills that they actually bring? Uh, And so it's, Yes, I think a lot of people have to deal with setbacks throughout their career, but it's also like looking at the bigger picture. And once they have that knowledge, what can you do with that knowledge? How do you make different choices? And how, if you're in a position of power, which some of my clients are, how can you change that for other people around you? If you're managing people, how can you make it easier for them to navigate their careers, for them to be who they are? Uh, And not just, I've been thinking a lot recently, not just about... um, you know, equity, which is important, but also that sense of belonging, like not just having opportunities, but being welcomed and selected for opportunities that are usually reserved for a select few um, with like white dudes being at the top of that uh, hierarchy. So resilience is something that I've come to think about a lot more than just like, what are what are the personal strategies? Kind of like self-care. It's like, how can we go beyond placing the onus on the person uh, and looking at systemic influences as well. Wow, that that's such a great answer and I've I've already I'm <laughs> excited for what's left of this interview already yeah. because I got so much <laughs> we'll just, just start that. there. Yeah. Right and it's it's you know there's so much to unpack there, you know, just because this one thing I did did not succeed does not make me a failure, which is something mm-hmm. that I personally struggle with, you know, and also, what can I do to make the path better for people who come after me? And I think that mm. that is what will make us all successful, truly, if we can make it a better atmosphere for everybody. And I think that, again, a lot of people I tend to work with are just like lovely, good humans and want to contribute the most they can. But like a question I would encourage people to ask is, like, who is deserving of my resilience? Like, do I, no job is perfect, I'll say that, and there will be resilience needed at every job, but 
who deserves that resilience? And how often do you have to be resilient in a role? If you're finding that you're, that's kind of like you all the time, then it might be time to look for something else or to see what can be shaped there um, or have some difficult conversations. But again, not everybody is deserving of your difficult conversations. That takes effort and bandwidth. And also looking at what is the cost of resilience? Like a lot of times it can be, you know, there's a cost of like, if you're having to go to therapy a few times a month, that's like an actual financial cost of trying to remain resilient. But then like, what's the mental cost? What's the cost outside of your life to, if you're trying to recover after work all the time, does that mean you're not able to do things you love or be with people you care about or be your best self with the people you care about? So it's, uh, I think sometimes we get stuck on like, I need to solve this problem and we forget that sometimes there are options of you don't have to face that problem necessarily or put all of your effort into solving it if it's not going to, in the bigger scheme of things, help you get where you want to go or it's not going to really, if it's never going to be the workplace that accepts you for who you are and really values your skills, then it's almost like I think of like looking for the trap door of that I think people forget is there. Not saying it's easy, but I think sometimes people get so fixated on like, I need to be resilient. And we get those messages from society of like, you know, stick it out, be persistent, don't be a quitter. And really it's, I think, going back to that question of who deserves your resilience. And I think that is the exact opposite of, you know, whether you call it toxic positivity or one of my favorite terms, hustle porn. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see if I'm allowed to say that on this podcast when it goes through our legal department. We'll see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I agree. I think that it's it's you know not so much hustling for the sake of hustling, and and really why what's at the core and what's going to make me lay my head on my pillow at the end of the day and know that I made a difference, which is super valuable, super valuable. And it also may. Your answer may change. Like, I like to think of careers as seasons. And so what you are willing to sustain or or work through now may not be the same as, like, two or three years from now. And it might be worth it right now. Maybe there's, like, some amazing trade-offs, like the money or, like, you get these you get to accomplish these huge things and then you know that you're going to make different decisions down the road. Like it might just be a short-term situation. And so I think sometimes also I see clients kind of get stuck in that I made this decision once and so now I have to stick with it. And no, you don't. Uh, You can change. And just like, like I really love the seasons analogy because we expect seasons to change. Like it's okay. It's not like There's no judgment sometimes. Uh, (laughs) And also we know how to prepare for the changing of the seasons, at least like, you know, in Canada, when you need to pack away your winter clothes and get your summer clothes out, same kind of thing. If you know like, okay, this workplace is no longer working for me or I'm getting bored or, you know, it's hitting my resilience max, like then it's just, okay, we move on. We focus on how do we find the next thing that's uh, a good fit for us. I love that. And I think that that's a perfect segue into my next question for you, which is you talk about divorcing our job titles. So for our listeners, can you explain that concept and what the value of that is? We love our job titles. Like think about anytime you're meeting someone and you ask that question, like, oh, what do you do? Like, 
more than likely that person's going to answer with their job title. And I think this is a bit of a a trap because we end up getting defined by our job titles. And for those of us who are generalists or maybe have had a non-linear career or want to switch careers, this can kind of like pigeonhole us, not only to other people, but to ourselves. And so when I say divorce your job titles, I'm thinking of like, you know, separate yourself, detach yourself from your job titles and instead focus on your skills and the specifically the skills that you actually want to continue using because you might be good at something, but especially if you're like from the nonprofit world or a small startup, you've probably become good at things that you don't want to be good at. You didn't have a choice in them. And so when you lead with your skills, that's a way for people to see that you are so much more than just your job title. Like if you even think of project manager, what does that mean? It means so many different things depending on the organization. Could be requiring formal qualifications or not at all. And so when instead of using a specific job title, you lead with your skills, the listener can see your potential and other possibilities of where you can go. And then also you can see that too. I hear a lot like, oh, I haven't had that job before, so I can't apply for this job. And it's like, well, if we, you know, even just on your resume covered up your job titles uh, and looked at your experience and your skills, when you look at it from that perspective, there's a lot more depth and again, possibility that people can see of helping people realize like, oh, I have done this. Like I haven't had the specific job title of project manager, but I've spent five years managing projects. And this is where a little bit of like ownership comes in and being to, I guess it's it's almost like renaming yourself. And so like claiming your own job titles of, I haven't been a project manager before, but I've done five years of it and I've done it well then you get to say, I have had five years of project management experience. So it's, yeah, job titles are, even I think people are really deterred by them when they're applying for jobs too, of like, oh, this seems different than what I've done. But again, cover up the title and look at actually what's there. Cause that's, that's actually going to be more reflective of the job that you end up doing than the job title itself. Definitely. And that that brings to mind that old Harvard Business Review stat that women will only apply for a job if they have 100% of the qualifications, while men will apply if they have, what is it 60, 60%, 70%? It's pretty, it's pretty telling. And it is something I would offer for people who are in that situation is, and I think it's not necessarily, I think we think of it as women. I think it tends to be also just marginalized people in general. Anyone who doesn't fit, again, that like white dude stereotype, looking at like, okay, you're only 60 to 70% qualified. That's fine. My main piece of advice around that tends to be as long as it's not one of the main qualifications that you're missing then it's still worth applying. And that's where all of this kind of falls upon the person, the candidate that's applying to communicate their skills and experience. And so if I don't have that experience, I still have to be able to talk about how would I get that experience or what comparable experience do I have? And I read recently in an article about the skill of being able to learn in itself is going to be, is, and can will continue to be one of the biggest skills that employers are looking for because 
the workplace and the landscape is always changing. And so having that skill of being able to learn is essential. And I think people really minimize that because it's not it's not a hard skill. It's not super tangible. But where it goes from being kind of like just words to actual communicating a skill is when you can show, demonstrate that you've done it before. So that's where coming up with clear examples is really super useful. And you have to connect the dots for the employer, help them see how you can do it. So you are a mm. salary negotiation coach. I am. Let's talk about salary negotiation. Yes. Um, it's no secret that we are all working to get a paycheck. So why is it so hard to ask for a salary increase? A million reasons. Um, <laughs> I think, first of all, we're not taught that it's okay. And we're not taught how to do it. So like not even being encouraged to do it and then not having the skills, that's like a brutal combination. And I also want to acknowledge it's it's a risk. I think I do say it's it's always worth asking for more because even if you get to a no, that employer knows kind of had a chance to talk about why you want more, what's important to you, what skills you're going to bring. And also employers usually know that if they say no, several times in a row, like if you ask and when another performance review, come, review comes up, you're probably not going to stick. Employees don't usually stick around after they've been declined several times. And it's clear that their financial growth is small at that employer. So although I think it is, it's almost always worth asking for more. I also think it's important to acknowledge like it is scary and there is risk involved and there's more risk for the more marginalized the person or the less privileged. And so that plays into it as well. I think kind of going back to what you were saying about toxic positivity, I think there's like the, if I can do it, anyone can. And it's like, okay, well, let's talk. Let's also look at what makes it easier for you to do it. Not saying it's impossible for other people to do it, but also sometimes acknowledging these things can help uh, people prepare for some of the pushback or what to do or even evaluating, is that risk worth it? For some people, it may not be depending on what their situation is. But yes, so that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons of why uh, we don't tend to ask for raises. Also, employers don't make it easy. I think it is a rare, like I've worked with I think over 500 people over the past five-ish years at this point. And it's very rare that I have seen an employer who actually has a clear performance review and compensation review process. And if they do, rarely do they communicate it to the employee. So there's a lot of like not knowing, disorientation. How do you prepare for something if you don't know what's involved? And so... Again, I think the onus is on the employee, unfortunately, to ask, what is the performance review process? And these are questions that are so, I think sometimes when people get a job offer, they're like, oh, yay, I was chosen. Sweet. Right. I can leave my yeah. job that I hate right now. And it's like, this is also <laughs> the time where you can get like really amazing information asking like, what is the performance review process? When does compensation tend to be reviewed? What is, can you give me an example? Asking for examples is amazing. Can you give me an example of the last 
of what a non-financial compensation might look like in this role or what's the average raise tend to be when performance review come, time comes. And so the more you can get that information early on, and if, if you're listening and you're someone who's just accepted a job offer, don't worry, you haven't missed this opportunity totally because <laughs> you can ask these questions at any point easier in the offer process. And then you can almost, it creates your own plan, hopefully, <laughs> for you to basically figure out, okay, if they say six months is when they do performance reviews, they may not open up the conversation for raises at that time, but you can. Again, you have to take the initiative and be prepared for that. You may even have to be the one that has to contact your manager and set up the performance review managers tend to be overworked. And so that six-month period may come and go. And if you haven't been notified about a performance review, that's when you get to follow up and say, I was told that there was a performance review around the six-month period. Uh, what are next steps for this? I'd like to set up a uh, time to discuss this. And again, confirming what the process is, because if there's no process, I see that as an opportunity to create your own process. And again, that means that you're showing up with all of the things that you've achieved, all of the things that are important to the employer that you've actually made progress on, and kind of building a case for why you should be getting a raise. But again, could be performance review, whether it's someone, if there's a process you're going through or you're having to initiate it yourself, they still may not bring up compensation. And that's where the magical words come in, where you get to say, I'd like to discuss compensation. And like even practicing that phrase can be stressful for people, but the yes. more <laughs> you get used to it, the easier it will be in the moment. And yeah. I've had clients where in the before times in an office, <laughs> the manager's like packing up and about to stand up and they then say the sentence and then it it takes the conversation down a different road. So mm -hmm. it is, employers don't make it easy, but there's a lot that you can do to prepare and shape the process or create the process if, if that's necessary. And again, I think sometimes thinking outside of the box of just, is there a performance review or not? But thinking like, okay, what can I do? What is within my power? How do I create something where there is more of a chance of me getting a raise uh, are important ways to look at this situation, not just uh, yes or no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really showing your value and, and being prepared is is fantastic. And it's it's interesting that you say that because I run a financial confidence program. I get people asking me all the time, mostly women, you know, is, when when is the right time? And and don't worry, I drop your name all the time. Um, <laughs> and because I don't know the the perfect time. And but I what I do say to several of my colleagues and my friends is that no one's sitting there saying, oh, you know, I really hope I can give Catherine a raise today. You really do have to go out of your way for yourself and do a little bit of that hard work. And it's not going to be easy all the time, but it's valuable to even just do it and, and have the conversation. And I think that even if you're coming at it from a salary standpoint, isn't your manager going to appreciate that you want to show your value? If they're a good manager, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if they're not uh, a good manager or they're not going to appreciate it, that's also where... I really encourage people to think about like, is that a place where you want to stay? 
Yeah. You may have to stay there shorter term because of financial needs or whatever, but that's also where like you can still plan your escape plan by that point and start thinking about, okay, where else, where is going to be a better place for financial growth? I think people are often afraid to get to the no, or if they get a no, because it's like, oh no, then what? But that almost negative information can be useful because it can help you make an informed decision. Like I would much mm -hmm. rather for someone to get a no now and know that they're not going to be making more in the next few years rather than waiting two or three years because there is like a financial and like a non-financial cost to that. If you, you could be making money more for the next three years somewhere else. Also, that's probably not a great workplace if they're not acknowledging your contributions or the skills you bring. And I think there's also people really put a lot of pressure on the raise situation. And the way I think about it is that's only one of three main opportunities to negotiate your salary. There's the job offer, which I think a lot of people, again, can sometimes just be so happy to find a job uh, or feel like, I don't want to ruin anything by negotiating. So I'm just going to take it. And it's like, that is, it is uncomfortable. And also that is the biggest opportunity for the biggest jump in salary. So I think people put a lot of pressure on getting a raise and expecting it's going to be massive. It's like, I've seen raises up to like 10%, which is considered big. Usually, if you want to get more than that, there has to be some sort of job title change or something that, because think about it from the employer's perspective. They're having to take this back to someone, make a justification for a change in budgets. Uh, and sometimes the easiest way to do that is to change a job title or move you up the pay grade that way, give you a promotion. It can be easier that way. But the job offer is really the biggest chance where like, that's where my clients who have seen increases of 20, 30, 40, $50,000, it's been in the job offer situation. And again, people are afraid of getting the no or the retraction of an offer of if I negotiate, are they going to take it back from me? Right. Okay. So I used to say it didn't because uh, I had never heard of it. And then I actually had a salary negotiation client where we were working on this and an offer was retracted. Oh, wow. I was mortified. Uh, and so we worked through it. We tried to see what was possible. And then it actually turned out, and this was kind of my thoughts, but it actually turned out that when this client had contacted other people, uh, other women, it's a women cl woman client, when she had contacted other women who had worked there, she found out it is a place where women are not progressed at the same rate as men. They're not treated well. And it was like, there was like definitely a financial cap. So she sees it as like she dodged a bullet. And that's usually what my response is, is if somebody retracts an offer, is that what does that say about the employer and what the workplace and your financial growth potential is there? It's probably not going to be great. And also I think I see the job offer as like the starting of a working relationship. Like when you're negotiating, that's not to say you have to be totally nice and accept everything, but more like, what does it say about a relationship if the person isn't even willing to talk to you or discuss things, what's more likely to happen than an offer being retracted. And I have had this happen to me in my nine to five life of them saying, we can't meet that. 
like that expectation, that salary negotiation, that salary uh, level, we can only go as far as X, Y, Z. And if that doesn't work for you, this might not be a good fit. And in that case, you get a choice. You can also say it's not enough and move on, but you can accept graciously as given the current circumstances or the current offer uh, and the opportunity to support this organization, I'd love to accept your most recent offer. And so again, thinking about the power dynamics, like that's very different than saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I stepped on your toes. Sure, I'll take it. And so thinking of as a working relationship, starting with the beginning of the hiring process, really, uh, not just when the offer comes. So the offer is the biggest opportunity. The raise is the one that most people do think of. And it's usually in the context of a performance review process, but it doesn't have to be. And the hardest one and the one that I think is the biggest missed opportunity people don't think of is negotiating an opportunity when your responsibilities have exceeded your role. And this happens to a lot of women, tends to happen a lot more in smaller organizations, nonprofit world. Maybe somebody's left and they didn't hire someone or they've just kind of evaporated a role and that gets put into onto your plate. But when you find that your duties are exceeding what they were when you first started, that's an opportunity to, again, say, I'd like to discuss compensation. No one's going to open that door for you. You kind of have to be there to advocate for yourself. Again, I wish it wasn't this way, but that's another opportunity. Um, it is harder uh, because usually the employer is not expecting it. But that's also where sometimes employers, managers aren't even aware of what's on your plate until you bring it to their attention. And at the very least, if you're not able to get a raise or, or a ch title change out of that scenario, hopefully you're able to negotiate some of those uh, responsibilities off of your plate. Because um, right. <laughs> like, if you can't go on, you either have to be paid more or be doing less work. And that's kind of also the benefit of if you get a no in that situation, hopefully you can delegate more. So we've talked a lot about salary and there are other opportunities. What are some other non-financial things that you encourage your clients to ask for or negotiate? I think sometimes when people ask this question, and I get this question a lot, is they almost expect me to have a checklist, which I do. Um, right. <laughs> but before then, even thinking of like, what is important to you? And like a lot of my work, not even just salary negotiation, but even job search is like starting with what's important to you and then seeing who can kind of like fulfill those needs, like which employers. It seems like a counterintuitive place to start because the job market, unemployment rates, it's very stressful. But if you don't know what you need or what will engage you or what will keep you in a role, then you can't communicate it and you can't ask for it. And then there's like almost no chance that you're going to get it. So I think it's the same with non-financial compensation. So first thinking about what else would you like? And I have seen people get so creative with this. I have had like one client I had, she negotiated instead of opening a satellite office that she was going to have to move to across the country, she was able to negotiate that office opening up in her city 
and hiring employees there and negotiating getting an assistant, so like more human power uh, to support her in her role. So even things like that, it can be like, that's not on a checklist. No, that was what was important to her. She had just had a kid and she was breastfeeding and like she didn't want to have to be traveling like three days of the week. And so asking her that question like prompted that like totally out of the box thought. So like think about what's important to you and then how can you ask for that? Some of the common ones, it used to be work from home, which is now almost everybody's working from home, big chunk of people. I think that's an important question, actually. As COVID is hopefully wrapping up and people are going back to the office asking that question, and it becomes, again, a point of negotiation of, okay, you want to negotiate working from home? How often? Do you want to have to ask permission? Like, even those slight nuances can make a big difference. Things like bringing your own devices. At one point, it was assumed an employer would provide your laptop and maybe even your phone I don't think we can make those assumptions anymore. So negotiating for those or a stipend even, and although those have like a number attached to them, like a financial number, again, thinking in terms of like a manager and their budgets of like, that's a different line item on a budget than like salary. So thinking kind of creatively can really bring up wild ideas. And I think it can be useful to almost ask the question to the employer, especially in a situation if it's a job offer or a raise, and if they're saying, okay, we can't meet this uh, request, asking what else is possible here? What can we do? What other non-financial aspects can we consider? Because you may have assumptions about what they're going to say, but they may come up with something totally different. Um, And that's where Usually, or I've had clients who it's like, you know, they could only get X amount increase of a raise, but then they get that the newer laptop or then they get a stipend for their home office. So involving, like looking at it as almost a collaborative process. And the other thing I like to kind of point out to people is like negotiation can feel like a conflict and it can feel like you're doing something wrong. And a lot of us are not used to doing this kind of thing and conflict is something we're not supposed to engage in but when we when we look at it as like a collaboration or starting that relationship it also demonstrates negotiation skills that if that's used or required in your role then again even if you get to the no you've demonstrated some of those skills that are essential to your role It's so important what you just said about we see it as a conflict and we run from conflict as much as possible because no one wants that yucky feeling, but it can be a conversation. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. And I think that looking at it that way can take a lot of the pressure off, really. And I think also we focus a lot on, you know, what should I ask for? What non-financial things? Like when is the right time? Uh, And taking this back to resilience and If I could do my TEDx again, another thing I would add is like looking at community or like how can your community support you? What kind of supports do you need to do this thing that's hard? Like it may may turn into a conflict. That is possible. Like I cannot promise that it won't. Who do you need to let know that you're going through this process? What kind of support do you need to ask for or accountability even to make sure you actually go through with it? What can you do to make it 
easier and then also get that connection piece from like the good people around you. And that might be people at work. Maybe you have a work wife or work husband. That also might be like a partner or a friend or like hiring a career coach. But I think sometimes we think of careers as like, I have to power through alone. And I think from what I've seen in my own experience and working with clients is it's a much easier process. And even if you don't get what you want, it's a just a, a much more pleasant and supportive process when you can involve other people and look to your community. I think of it almost as like, like one of the exercises I do at the beginning of when I have people join guidance counseling for adults, which is like kind of like a job search club, figuring out what you want to do. I have people outline like, who are the important people in your life who would be willing to support you through these big questions and these hard things? Um, because having that list of people ready and reaching out to them in advance is going to make it so easier for when you actually, it's going to make it so much easier when you actually need come back to them and say, hey, this negotiation is, isn't going well, or this negotiation is going well. I want to celebrate because it even just asking is like a big thing that most people, I say that is the biggest mistake that I see with people is like actually no, not asking because so many people just don't get to the point of asking. Yeah, it's, there's such a stigma with it. And uh, I think, I mean, even just this conversation that we're having has destigmatized it a lot. Just for me, we've talked a little bit about the no. So in what case do you believe getting a no is a deal breaker? This is where I'm going to go back to the knowing yourself, like what is a deal breaker for you? And I think that's easier once you've kind of figured out and like reflected beforehand on what's important to you and what do you need? Because then it's clearer of, are you getting what you want? Are you not getting what you want? But you also get to decide what's acceptable and what's worth it. If there's a good trade-off, you might be willing to accept the no or you might be willing to accept the no for a limited time. You also might accept the no, but then in your head being like, I'm mentally quitting right now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be here and do the work or like maybe 80% work and then spend like 20% of my effort. I'll save that for job searching. And so I think it's like through all of this, I think it's really important. And I see it again reflected in the people I work with of having like being intentional and making informed decisions. So it can be really hard to get a no, but you still have the choice of not only what do you do in that moment, but what are you going to do afterwards? You can be upset, like it, it sucks. You can also decide like, I'm gonna take a week, I'm gonna connect with people, I'm going to like mourn and grieve, um, like career grief is a real thing. And then I'm going to figure out what I need to do next. And on the flip side of that, I think it does bear mentioning that salary is not always everything. So when does it make sense to take a pay cut? I think almost switching the question of how can I do this without taking a pay cut or where can I go that won't, where I won't have to take a pay cut? Because I think sometimes people are, especially when I have people who are wanting to switch careers or doing changing industries, they're like, 
even without me asking, they're like, oh, and I'll take a pay cut. I'm like, you don't know. You don't know if you need to yet. Like, let's let's aim for not taking a pay cut and figure out how can we set you up to not take a pay cut instead of just assuming I will need to. And I think that goes back to divorcing your job titles. If you say, I'm a business development person, I have a business development role, um, but I want to move into project management, like that framing is not going to make it clear to the person that you're capable of doing a project management role. But if you say like, I have over five years of project management experience um, working with uh, international companies in a bunch of different industries, but you still have the business development role job title, like that's going to make the person see that, okay, making that transition is not a big jump. Like you've just kind of proven that you do have the skills. And so when you help people see that you do have experience or how your experience is comparable, it's not likely that you'll get as much of a pay, pay cut or you won't encounter that. So instead of starting from a place of when will I accept a pay cut? It's almost like where can, what will help you not accept a pay cut? And this is also where resumes are a necessary evil. I do think that there's a time and place for them, but part of the main strategy that I help people focus on is coffee chats, connecting with people, connecting with people in the field, because that's going to, someone who's actually in a role that you're wanting to switch into or a company you're wanting to switch into, they're going to be able to give you the inside info and tell you how did they perhaps make a switch without a pay cut. So almost thinking of like, who's like brain trust can you tap into to find out? There are some companies that are more willing to take people with a different background or offer opportunities without a pay cut. And then if there is a pay cut that's required, uh, again, going back to what is most important to you? How long like, does this compensate for the fact that you're actually going to not be making as much money? And then almost looking at the bigger picture as well, looking at is this an investment? If you were there for a year and then you're able to move up, what does your salary look like at that point? Um, will you be making the same or more than before? And that I think is also important to ask those kind of questions during coffee chats. And then when there's an offer on the table, like, so you can get a sense again of the financial growth because short-term pain, long-term gains may be the scenario. But again, coming back to like, if you know what's important to you and what you need, both financially and non-financially to be happy in a workplace, and you're make, asking the right questions so you can make an informed decision. Ideally, you won't have to deal with the situation of having a pay cut. But if you do encounter that, you'll know, is it worth it? Because that's basically the question. It's like, is it worth it? Yeah. And thank you for that. I, I really enjoy what you said about, you know, using tapping into your network and, and the brain power that you have around you, because that's such a valuable thing too. You really don't have to go it alone. And that's why, you know, we need to talk about things like this. We need to shatter this taboo of talking about money because it's something that we're all dealing with and uh, it's such a valuable conversation. So thank you so much for, for coming on the You're podcast. Welcome talking to us about this. I have a feeling that there are going to be a lot of listeners who are going to want to learn more. So where can we find you online? 
katherinemeisner.com, a very creatively named business. Uh, <laughs> and that's my handle on Instagram and Twitter, Katherine Meisner. And actually, if people want to check out a salary negotiation guide, Katherine Meisner dot com slash guide. Uh, and that goes over some of my biggest tips <laughs> that I've acquired over the years of working with people to ask for more. And for anybody listening, I have to say your site is packed with useful information. So definitely check it out. I got lost in the blog because I was just kept yeah, reading, and reading and reading and so reading. Yeah. And it's great stuff. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom with us. And you're welcome. I hope you have a great afternoon. Thanks very much, Sarah. I really valued hearing Catherine talk about resilience. Things really aren't the way they were years ago. You're not necessarily going to stay at the same company for your entire career, so a semblance of resilience might be necessary for success. Every step in your career has the potential to teach you valuable things that you'll be able to bring with you to the next stage. Over 20 years later, I look back on that first job and remember things I learned in my early days of working. As Catherine said, careers are like seasons, and I really love thinking of it like that. What's important to you now may change in the future. If you make a decision once, doesn't mean that you have to stick with that decision until you retire. Change it up. One of the most valuable pieces of wisdom Catherine shared, and there are a lot in this episode, is that there are so many opportunities to talk about your salary, from the job offer to review time. While it is okay to ask at any point, asking during the offer process or review process makes it a lot easier. You might even have to set the conversation up, but that's okay. You have to take initiative and advocate for yourself. It isn't always easy, but having the conversation is an important exercise. And don't forget that there's more to your job than the salary. Take some time to think about what else is important to you, whether it be remote work, vacation days, or maybe an educational fund. What else is possible? The best thing to remember is that a salary negotiation is not a conflict. It's a collaboration. Thank you for listening to the Take Back Talk Back podcast, the podcast where we open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations, just like this one. You know what we don't talk about enough? The sneaky ways we lose money. Everyone is always so quick to blame coffee, and I have to say I'm sick of coffee getting such a bad reputation. I love coffee. I live on coffee. Please don't come for my coffee. There's something worse. Account fees. So many of us pay up to 20 bucks a month just to have our money in the bank. I have a word that could describe this, but I work for a bank, so maybe I'll just say it's poppycock. There is an alternative. EQ Bank doesn't charge monthly fees, transaction fees, Interact e-transfer fees. There's no minimum balance and you earn a high interest rate on every dollar. Skip the bank fees and have your coffee. Learn more at eqbank.ca. The Take Back Talk Back podcast is brought to you by EQ Bank, Money Well Banked. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Equitable Bank. Any information provided is for information purposes only, and Equitable Bank makes no representations as to the validity, accuracy, or completeness or suitability of any content.
you should seek the advice of a qualified professional or undertake your own research before making financial decisions. This podcast is produced by the phenomenal team at Quill. Thanks for listening.